Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. You know, the fact that we call it true crime as a genre, the fact that a shared delusion among the populace, especially women who think if they know enough about it, then they'll be safe. Because all they got to do is pick out the thing to let them identify perpetrators or the thing that victims do wrong. And as long as I figure that out, I'll be fine. And I'm like, that's not how it works. Welcome to Discover More. My name is Benoit Kim, an abstract thinker turned psychotherapist. Today's conversation with a forensic psychologist will explain the psychology behind our true crime obsession and what it's actually like working with serial killers and psychopaths. Dr. Kate Wallinga is a forensic psychologist, crisis clinician, and the host of a top 1.5% globally ranked podcast, Ignorance Was Bliss. Kate provides an in-depth look into the world of forensic psychology and what it's actually like to work with sociopathic individuals, serial killers, and inmates with mental illnesses. You can expect to learn about the truth behind true crime, working with inmates and murderers, how prison intentionally dehumanizes inmates, criminal justice system and mental health, and much, much more. Thank you for discovering more with us this week. Before the episode, here is the sponsor of the week. How many times do you have to switch stations to find the music you like? Us too. Which is why we've created Cool.fm. The perfect blend of adult hits, modern country, and your favorite classics. Cool.fm is accessible on all mobile platforms and smart devices, so you can multitask and listen to the music you like best. Available online at Cool.fm, that's K-E-W-L.fm, and on all mobile and smart devices. Internet radio at its best. Cool.fm. Now, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Kate Wallinga. Discover More, Discover More is a show, is a show. for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to see you. So from the outside, Kate, forensic psychologists seem like a thrilling profession. But can you debunk some popular myth and misconceptions related to being a forensic psychologist with decades of experience like yourself? I mean, the first step is that it's not profiling. A lot of people mistake profiling for forensic psychology. So profiling is when there are crimes happening out in the community and trained professionals try to use aspects of that crime or of the crime scene to find the perpetrator. Profilers are primarily cops or law enforcement officials. I didn't want to be a cop. Like I thought about it for a little while, but 
ultimately there were some things about profiling and pursuing the job that did not work with my goal of being a decent parent as well, mm. such as I'm not comfortable with guns in my home. Also, you have to travel about 48 weeks out of the year, unless you happen to live someplace where there are serial killers year round, which is probably not <laughs> ideal, right? right. So, so forensic psychology, forensic means any involvement in the criminal justice system. And it means after they've been caught, not necessarily after they've been adjudicated guilty. Mm. Sometimes I got called in pre-trial, sometimes to figure out how the trial or whether the trial should happen. And then often after the trial to help figure out how can they best be housed or how can we best treat them. Right. So what is the difference between forensic evaluation that a lot of forensic psychologists do and then the profiling that you just talked about? I know that profiling is, is very intensely behavioral. So if you are in the psychology field, you understand that there's different ways of looking at other humans, cognitive behavioral, behavioral, existential humanistic, you know, Freudian, that sort of thing. And profiling is very extremely behavioral because that's all you have to work with is the known behavior of the offender and evidence of their behavior, such as the way that they mark up the crime scene or the damage that they inflict upon the victim or something like that. Forensic assessment, I had a lot more leeway in terms of how am I going to connect with this person? And so step one was to sit down and just talk to them and figure out how do they communicate? How do they think? And that helped me structure, okay, how am I going to do this assessment. Also, there's not just one type of assessment. Like profiling is fairly narrow in terms of you're trying to figure out who done it. That's the question that you're always trying to answer. With forensic psychology, you're asked kind of a different question for each person. Is this person competent to stand trial? Is this person safe in prison or jail setting? What is their diagnosis? Are they lying? Which, here's the answer. I don't know hmm. whether they're lying. Humans are not lie detector tests, but you kind of get a sense. And so it's, there's a lot more flexibility and a lot more unpredictability in forensic psychology from my perspective. How did you first reconcile with the humanity of these convicted offenders? Because yes, some of them are sociopathic, some of them have psychopathy, and some of them are simply just the victims of their circumstances with years and years of trauma and stress that triggered their mental illnesses and so on, while recognizing and acknowledging their criminal history. How did you approach that dance? Because some people might be wondering, holy crap, how do you even sit across these serial murderers or offenders? I mean... One part of it is that it's really important to remember that we are not equivalent to the worst thing we've ever done. Mm. And many of these people are only known for the worst thing they've ever done because they got caught. Whereas lots of us are wandering through the world not having gotten caught, but we know. We know what our worst day was, what our worst utterance was, or what our worst action was. We just may not have gotten caught. That's luck. Mm. That's not skill. Exactly. So that's 
one important thing. And for another, I it's easier for me to describe with an anecdote. When I first started working, at, I worked at the New Hampshire State Prison for Men in Concord, New Hampshire for a while, which was very lucky for me, for one, because you talked about guilt, and that was never my problem. My job wasn't to determine, is this person guilty? My job was to answer the question that I was given. And in New Hampshire, there are forensic psychologists that are hired by the prosecution. There are forensic psychologists who are hired by the defense. And there are forensic psychologists who are hired by the state. And that meant I didn't have a pony in the race. It's not that I didn't care, but I kind of didn't care what the ultimate verdict was in the case. They gave me a question. I answered it to the best of my ability and we moved on. And so if they were found guilty or not guilty, that was not fundamentally my problem, which kind of took a weight off. But when I first started at the at the prison, you know, they gave the new kid the easy jobs, right? And so I was given the job of taking doing sort of an intake for new inmates, which if you're in prison, that means that you're, you've been found guilty and your sentence is generally more than five years. That's the difference between prison and jail. Is Jail is pre-trial or less than five years. I worked in a prison. And so they've already been in the system. They already know. But still, we do an intake. And it's demographic information. What's your name? Where are you from? Pretty straightforward. And we'll call the guy Joe. But he's the kind of guy who kind of had to turn and duck to come through a regular door. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was not someone who was unassuming and quiet. He he was the one where all the neighbors were like, oh, I totally figured something was wrong with that guy. Although, really sweet guy. And he had been through the intake process several times. And we went through the process. Please spell your name and tell me where you're born and blah, blah, blah. And at the end, without giving a lot of thought to it, just thinking I'm going to be polite. I said, great. Uh, thanks, Joe. I really appreciate your time. And Joe burst into tears. And I'm alone in a room with him. It was like a former classroom that they didn't use anymore. So I'm just in a big room with this dude who is handcuffed by one wrist to a plastic chair, which really just sort of made it more of a weapon. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I just broke him. I just broke Joe. What do I do? Oh, and he, you know, he pulled it together quick because in prison, you don't show emotion very long. And he's like, sorry, sorry, sorry. I haven't heard somebody call me by my first name in years Mm. because in prison, other inmates either call you by your last name or by a nickname of some sort, and guards generally call you by your number. They don't even use your last name, which dehumanizes you. And there are reasons for that, which we can go into if you want to, but it's sort of a, it's partly culture, but partly necessary for everybody to survive in there. And I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't realized it. And so I said it sort of offhanded. And he was just like, I haven't heard anybody say that in a, sort of caring, non-mocking way in probably a decade. My family doesn't talk to me anymore, and I, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. And that was such a lightning bolt for me to remember, like, there's a person here inside. Like, he's not just his, his verdict. You know, he's not just his crime. There's a human being inside, and... I learned immediately after that to ask people, 
you know, what is your given name, but also what would you like me to call you? And things like that, you know, you learn little things like that to realize like, yeah, they did some terrible things. And many of them, I don't want living next door to me for sure, but they're still humans and they still matter. And this may be the only time I can give them where they feel that way. And so I felt like that was important. And you don't ever forget what they did. It's important to read their their docket, their, to read their paperwork beforehand, because they'll lie if they think they can get away with it. Why not? And yet, it's also important to remember that that's one aspect of them. That's one facet of them. But there are more facets, and we need to address all of them, because in theory, hopefully, almost everyone will be released someday dehumanizing them and hurting them over and over and over for years and then saying, okay, out you go back to the street. That seems like a dangerous approach to me. Right. And that's one of those, such an obvious thing that people forget about where you don't equip them with any practical life skills, transitional skills, anything, and just say, good luck. And the underlying message is see you soon. I do want to highlight the humanistic lens you portray through where that was my biggest learning edge when I first became a forensic clinician uh, three years ago now, where, yes, it is our subjective expertise, and yes, we are equipped with a certain training modalities to do evaluations or have these skill sets to deal with and navigate this very sensitive container. At the same time, it's never our job to determine someone else's worth. It's just simply not our job, right? And I appreciate you contextualizing the difference between prison and cell because I think people use them very loosely, right? Like a lot of people use sociopathic and psychopathy the same, but there are fundamental differences. Of course, you and I know that. But yeah, could you go a little bit more into the why prison systems only address these offenders by their numbers? And I can sort of guess it's almost like a bi-directional way where for the prison correctional officers, it might be easier for them to not view them as a person, but just a number and vice versa. But yeah, could you tell us like maybe the historical context or why they do what they do? Corrections officers, COs, some of them are great and some of them are not like any job that you ever go to, right? right. But fundamentally, it's not written this way in the job description, but it's there. They are asked to do something inhumane. Hmm. They are asked to take another human being who's, I mean, the best predictor of future offense is not necessarily past offense. It's the zip code, uh, the area code, whatever, in which you were born. So it's luck. It's just dumb luck, whether you have a life that leads you to think that crime is the answer or not. And we know that when we work in the system for a while and the number of people you talk to and you're like, you're just exactly like my uncle. I, I don't understand. Okay. You know, it's, 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 there's a, an anxiety that, that comes when you start to humanize people. And then when you're asked, I want you to, to treat this person not even as well as you would treat an animal. I want you to treat them just like a thing, just a number that you move from place to place. That's how they sleep at night. We're paying them to do an inhumane thing. And so one of the ways to do that is to move as far away from treating them as a human as they can. 
And I get that. I don't blame them for taking the job in the first place. And I don't blame them for distancing themselves because it's it's important for it's really important for our corrections officers to stay sane. We want that. We don't want them falling apart. And so referring to inmates by number helps just it's just number you know three four six oh one whatever that's over there and not my problem and they're out of my mind as soon as i'm done we also often have co's change position physical position within the the prison on the regular so that you don't form too many bonds with the inmates and it's a lonely existence and you know the inmates meanwhile you got a front you got to keep a, a tough look on you at all times. And a lot of people say, well, why don't we do more therapy of some sort, more life skills with inmates? And the answer is because it would kill them. And I'm not over-exaggerating when I say it would literally kill them because a good therapy session, if, for those who have never been in one, and if you haven't, let me use a plug for therapy, do it. like. Let me let me tell you right now, it's the same. It's it's sort of the same as if you go to the gym, hire a personal trainer to make sure you're doing everything right. Therapy too. Like you're not perfect. And if you are, then maybe you're a narcissist. Right. Just saying. So a good therapy session, you should walk out exhausted a little bit, uh shaky a little bit, a little shaken, a little, you know, what just happened? I didn't think of things that way. It should feel good, but it also should be a little bit overwhelming because you just used a muscle you don't normally use. Well, in in prison, part part of that as well on the outside is that you're tapping into some vulnerability and I don't want to say weak is not the word, but you know what I mean? Like softer. And in prison, if I work with you as a therapist, and I break down those walls, and I make you more vulnerable, and I make you softer. And then I'm like, okay, it's been 50 minutes. Walk across the yard now. See ya. I mean, you might as well have a kick me sign on their back. It's just, it's a dangerous thing. Even life skills and that sort of thing. It's a dangerous thing. Learning takes a lot of courage, and it can be a rough brain shaking experience and so sometimes i could go cell to cell and talk to people but even then i'm sitting in the hallway they're sitting in their cells i never was locked in a cell i was occasionally locked in like a classroom but even then i had a panic button i was never locked in somebody's cell with them and so i'm sitting in the hallway they're sitting in the cell so the people on either side can hear what i'm saying and any sort of confidentiality goes right out the window there so Trust me, the mental health staff inside the prisons would love nothing more than to build a more secure, uh, more empathic, more thoughtful approach to the world within our inmates because everybody else is working to break that down. But we can't ethically do that because you can't do something that you know is going to hurt somebody. Yeah, there is never content without context. And I think contextualization is really important where, of course, Brainerd Brown, prominent researcher for um, shame and guilt, she talks about vulnerability strength. And that is almost always true, except in prison. 
vulnerability is definitely not strength as you talked about it's like basically saying that hey kick me in the back i'm open for whatever that may come if you do true that vulnerability to someone else and the reason why i asked that question kate is because i want to extrapolate this beyond the container of prison where it comes down to labeling culture right once i label you as an inmate 306 then that diminishes the essence of who you are and the essence of who you are get confined into this labeling. And we do that in our political climate too. Oh, you're a Republican. Doesn't matter your entire life, that you're a father, you're a parent, you have all these essences and experiences before you during this conversation. Instead, I just see you as a Republican and vice versa. Oh, you're a Democrat? Then you must be X, Y, and Z. And a lot of this polarity that we live in that's exacerbating and getting worse and worse and more heightened is because this progressional process of us having less and less conversations one-on-one -on -one because we get stuck and we can't get past that labeling of, oh, you're just a box, nothing more, nothing less. Any thoughts there? Because I do feel like we do need to lean into this common humanity that we're all within. At the same time, it's easier said than done. I think a lot of humans spend a lot of time talking about what they are not. Mm. And that's easier to do than to say what I am. I can't speak for being raised male identifying in our culture, but being raised female identifying in our culture, then going on, I worked at IBM. I worked as a journalist. I worked running a learning disabilities clinic. Then I went on to do forensic work and crisis work. All of those tend to be male dominated fields. In, in one way or another. And I had to spend a lot of time insisting on what I was not. I'm not that. I'm not, I'm not earthy crunchy. I'm not easy to take advantage of. I'm not weak in some way. And fundamentally, I can be all of those things. But I, I have to spend a lot of time screaming that I'm not those things in order to earn basic professional respect mm. sometimes and for better or worse well someone's in prison that is their job their job is to stay alive and so they have to not be a lot of things and vulnerable is one of the things that they cannot do and i'm of the personal opinion that showing vulnerability and sharing vulnerability is one of the most courageous things we do as a human being but courage is not always the right answer. Sometimes the right answer is to do whatever it takes to keep breathing that day. Yeah, it's, I think one of my favorite definition of courage is not at, in light of absence of fear, but through fear, you show courage, right? And if you really think about like paradigm shift, that paradigm shift is only possible when you have an opportunity to escape that paradigm onto the new one. But for these prisoners or inmates to experience a paradigm shift of going from this harsh shelf machoism, because as you said, surviving is everyone's number one priority. Absolutely number one priority for the inmates. But then they can't really go through that paradigm shift because their livelihood and 10 more years during this, they're in this stuckness and there's nothing they can do. So in that sense, Kate, how did you grapple with this 
important duty that all of us have as therapists, psychologists, or otherwise to instill hope. Because I think that's what mental health is. It's about hope, and it's about the idea that you're not alone. But when you're facing this specific, very marginalized, and very unique subset of population, how do you even approach instilling hope? Is that even possible? I would argue that it's not about instilling hope. It's about defining realistic hope. So when you're on the outside, sometimes the point in doing therapy, and I had to do therapy for a little while because you have to, to get your doctorate, but I'm not good at it. I'm not very patient. And I just, it's not my thing. I'm just not. I like working with many people in a week and I like not knowing what's going to happen. And I, I like the, the privilege of the glimpse that a lot of people make assumptions about, whether it's crisis work in the ER or whether it's forensic work in a prison, there's a privilege there of seeing what goes on. But even, you know, even then, people go into the ER going, I just want to feel better. And sometimes you have to look them in the eye and say, it's not going to happen. Mm. I, I, I'm so, like, sorry about it, but you're going to feel some better. We're going to try to get you safe, but feel better? Social media version better? That's not real. And so the goal was not about making primarily men, I did work at the women's prison as well, but the women's prison in New Hampshire is so small that they just sent us up there when they needed an evaluation. I didn't work there full time. The goal was never to make them feel hope. The goal was for them to understand this is what the system is and is not. Here's what you should and should not expect. Here's what you can and cannot expect, however you want to word it. And ask me questions. Now, I'm okay to ask questions of you know, you may not want to ask your cellmate, you may not want to ask the COs because they may hold it against you because, you know, it's all commodities. Information is a commodity that we can use against people. I'm not gonna because, frankly, as soon as we leave here, I'm going to work with four other people today and your question is going to stop existing in my brain. So now's the time. And also, if I think you're BSing me, I'm going to call you out on it because I don't have time for BS. I got to move on to these four other people that I got to work with today. And I think for the most part, people appreciated that. They they liked knowing that I was going to tell them the truth. And if the answer was, look, you're going to have a really hard day today. You're going to have a hard month. You're going to have a hard year. And then sorry to tell you that the first week, month, year after you're released is going to be even harder than anything that you've lived with on the inside. It's not great to hear. You know, it's not fun for somebody to tell you like, yeah, you're not actually going to feel any better. But on the flip side, they know I'm not lying. They know I'm not making stuff up or they're there patting them on the head. They know that I'll answer to the best of my ability. And if I don't have an answer, I'll try and go find it. And so for me, that was what it was about. It was not about giving hope. And people would ask me, for instance, pre-trial, do you think I'm going to get off? And I'd be like, no. Hmm. But then I don't think you're going to get found guilty either. That's not my job. I'm not a judge, lawyer, uh, any of that stuff. That's not what I'm here to do. And 
I, I had to have a written report for everybody that I saw, and I would bring it to them. And I would say, this is what I'm going to testify to today. You should recognize yourself in it. And that's all I'm going to speak to. And if they ask me questions that aren't in this report, I'm not going to answer the questions. That's what I got. And I think, I hope that they understood that that was my way of treating them with maximum respect. I think it's a very sensitive balance between hope and truth. I'm currently reading this book called When Nietzschean Wept. It's written by a physician, author, I forgot his name. But it's based on a lot of truthful historical context of Nietzsche, right? The philosopher who declared God is dead in light of nihilism. Freud is actually part of that book because they're from the same generation. And there is this very small paragraph they were talking about the role of truth, even when that truth is not delightful, very deeply uncomfortable in terms of patient and physician relationship. And this physician that was in the book, he talked about his role is not the vanguard of truth. His hope is to ease the suffering of these patients to the best of his ability. And I sort of sense that message there too, where it's not always our job to instill hope. At the same time, you also don't want to reckon or destroy someone else's reality for no reason, right? Can we go a little bit more into like, how did you navigate that space, as you alluded to earlier, where it is the man's world, especially this prison, which is a very, very unique setting. And as you said, you're not weak uh, because of your assertiveness and your skill sets and you know who you are. At the same time, I'm sure this prison culture, especially with correctional officers, is very, very interesting in addition to everything we talked about. Anything comes to mind for you there? I mean, people have asked me before, what a dangerous job. How did you manage such a dangerous job? And, and I answer with full honesty, that was probably the safest I ever felt at work mm. when I worked in the prison because people may or may not realize that within the prison, once, once you're behind those locked doors, there is sort of a secondary court system. And there's something called status crimes in our society which people would be more familiar with. For instance, it's illegal to drink when you're 20 and it's legal to drink when you're 21, right? So based on your status, truancy, it's legal for me not to attend school. It's illegal for a child not to attend some form of schooling, right? That kind of thing. Well, within the prison, there's a whole lot more status crimes mm. and there's a court within like literally a judge and courtroom and the whole thing within, which I didn't appear in very often because they, that's very behavioral and very, did this happen or did this not? And that wasn't, they weren't especially concerned about why. And so you don't touch staff. That's one of the things that's just understood with a lot of inmates. And so if you have an inmate who is likely to touch any staff member, whether it's a CEO or a nurse or a mental health worker or whatever, there's already like you already know before they do it you already know you get the vibe there are some people that just so that's step one step two is you really don't touch the female staff even things like spitting standing too close those are considered assault they're considered assault on the outside but nobody's going to press charges on the inside anything that's remotely chargeable will be charged uh, or at least held over your head. So it wasn't just that I was never assaulted in the prison, but there were times where I would have inmates pull me aside and be like, don't walk through the yard right now. 
Mm. Something's about to go down. Avoid it. So I, I felt protected. I felt like as long as you respect and understand the culture and you don't try to drive it or change it, but you acknowledge like this is how it's going to be, then the flip side is that they look out for you as well. And so it, it really felt like a, a pretty comfortable space. Like I had a lot more disrespect when I worked at IBM. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. How come none of the Netflix true crime series or all these true crime podcasts talk about any of these? Like talk about this alliance that is possible even for a female staff like you in this air quote men's world. I understand sensationalism, right? But it's so fascinating that even this harsh actual reality that so many of these individuals live in. And like I said, many of them is due to unattended mental health issues and just the genetic lottery or lack thereof and yeah it's so fascinating that even prison is like a reality tv shows now and all these things are becoming content and these consumable pleasure and entertainment for the masses it's fascinating i mean for one nobody asks like which sounds oversimplified but for real like if nobody's asking then where am i going to answer like to a degree, that's why I started my podcast is because it was, I had all this information and you, between a traumatic brain injury and I broke my back, I, I had to start, I had to stop what I was doing and find something else to do. And my first something else to do was to mope for several years. And then I decided to, to find a thing that felt creative. And I was like, well, let's talk about these questions where I'd be listening to a podcast and they would ask like, what does schizophrenia mean anyway? And I'd be like, oh, ask me. I know, I know, I know. And then I realized, well, nobody's asking me because I'm answering sitting alone on my couch six months after their episode has been recorded. So maybe I just got to start one myself. And I thought I'd do like 10 or 20 episodes and be done. Uh, apparently not. <laughs> apparently not. But so for one, nobody's asking. For another, people don't like nuance. Those who want to think, those who want to find nuance, are doing work, are fighting against the rest. And those who don't like nuance are screaming. And there comes a point where it's like, well, do I want to deal with people screaming at me or do I want to just go do the thing? And for me, I just want to do the thing. And you know, the the popularity of, you know, the fact that we call it true crime as a genre, the fact that a shared delusion among the populace, especially women, who think if they know enough about it, then they'll be safe. Because all they got to do is pick out the thing to let them identify perpetrators or the thing that victims do wrong. And as long as I figure that out, I'll be fine. And I'm like, that's not how it works. Like, cute. Nice. Not how it works. And, you know, the, the people that are most likely to hurt you are the people that are closest to you in life. And people don't like to think about that. So I'm not allowed in my house to watch the fictional, especially crime series, like, like Criminal Minds, Bones, that kind of thing. I'm not allowed. Like my husband and kids are like, please stop. For the love of all that is holy, please stop watching them because I lose my itty bitty mind. Often a sort of trope is that the agents or psychologists or whoever are sitting in an interview room with a convicted 
felon or suspected felon or whatever. And the felon says something and they're like, I have to tell my boss this. And they whip out their cell phone to call. And I'm like, that doesn't happen. <laughs> like, it makes me crazy because you know who has cell phones in prisons? Not the staff. We had little mailboxes and we had to go through a metal detector every day at work. And so we would stick our phones and keys in their, our little mailboxes and then go through the metal detector and go to work. I didn't have a phone every day, all day. That's how it is. The people who have cell phones in prisons are the inmates. Right. That, that's who has them. And so, like, that's such a simple, easy to figure out thing. And it would only take 30 seconds to explain it in a show. But people are so used to having the phone in their hand at all times that it doesn't literally, I think, doesn't even occur to people to ask, would you have a phone in prison? Is that a thing you would have? Of course you would. Mm -mm. So, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that happen and a lot of simplicity. Simplicity is easy. We want black and white. We want to be able to just say, oh, I get it. I would totally, I would know. You don't know who's lying and who's telling the truth, but I would know. And I'm like, really? That's cute. Yeah, if you push that level deeper, it's like podcaster, right? A lot of the audiences are like, oh, I could have a better conversations. Oh, I would have asked this. Such a shame that they didn't. Right, you try it out. And the last time I checked, you don't have a podcast. So I, I just, I, I'm telling you, less than a week ago, I got a, so I don't, I don't read my reviews. Mm -hmm. anymore because reviews you either get fives or ones right right you either get you're great or you're terrible and nothing in the middle and i'm like all right fine you know what let people say what they got to say i can't let that change who i am and what i do but i do read dms whether it's on facebook or twitter or whatever and i do read emails that kind of thing and so I got a DM on Facebook. And the only reason I noticed it, because it went into message requests, it wasn't from an existing friend. The only reason I noticed it is because I was waiting for jury duty. And so it's like, what are you going to do? I'm like going through like the, the dark, deep recesses of my phone looking for things I've never seen before. And it's a woman who said to me, your speaking style sucks. And I can't listen to you for one more second. You have too many hesitations, too many pauses, and you sound like you don't know what you're talking about. Thanks, I guess. But 13 years ago, I was in a coma, and when I came out, I literally couldn't say my own name. So I'm kind of proud of myself for being able to speak at all. Now, good luck finding a show that meets your criteria, by the way, which is also free. Right. <laughs> and, you know, be gone with you basically and and so it's it's wild how people try to gatekeep in a lot of ways so i started as a true crime adjacent show like i thought that that i would focus on explaining the process and then be done and about a year in i was asked to run a table at a podcast convention which i won't name and I had another podcaster stop me in the middle of the floor as I'm setting up or whatever and say, um, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I sure feel like that's obvious, but um, I don't understand your question. Please clarify. And they're like, you're not true crime. You don't have a narrative prescripted show. That's not true crime. 
priest, they, they're, they're telling me all true crime has to be this one thing. And I was like, I literally sat in the room with serial killers, like actively been paid to sit on the stand in a criminal trial. You do some other job, but you don't know where the nearest prison or jail is to your home. You've never been inside one. You've never spoken to. Okay, you know what? Thank you for your feedback. And right after that, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to fight this. I'm not going to fight this gatekeeping feeling of what is and isn't. I'm going to do what I want to do, which is talk to people. When you're doing crisis assessment or forensic assessment, the trick is I'm going to check my reality at the door. My sense of logic, my sense of rationality, all of that, I'm going to check at the door and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to say, tell me your story. What brings you here? And I'm going to go along with them for the ride. And there are times where I'm going to be like, you did what? In my head. But the outside is okay. And so after you eviscerated the person, then, what you know, like you just go with it. And the trick is to then pick up your own morality and ethics and reality and logic at the door on your way out so that you don't go home and scare the children. But if other people think they can do it better, go for it. Start a podcast. It's not expensive. Yeah. I think the most important and sacred thing that we can do as not just podcasters and storytellers, but as humans is bearing witness to someone else's journey and the experiences and the stories they carry with them. And that's such a simply thing, but it's not easy because with now all these 30 second reels, highlight captures of the 150 characters, nothing more, which is a death of nuances we've been talking about. But I echo that message loudly where when I was a forensic clinician, the power of just sitting in that room, the same room across the serial murderers, and a lot of these crimes are atrocious and really, really, really hard to read in a court report because a lot of their victims are their immediate family, their mom, like Ted Bundy type. I've had some of those patients as well. And of course, those are rare cases where they actually have psychopathy. But I just want to go back quickly to what you talked about, where a lot of the female listeners who love true crime, because they have this illusion, delusion that, oh, if I know this and I'll be safe. <laughs> I'm sorry to break that news even harder, but majority, which is 51%, majority of serial killers who have psychopathy or sociopathic tendencies a lot of them are voluntarily caught for the infamy's sake, like one of the really, really prominent ones. But many of them, polygraph doesn't work. They are antisocial personalities. So they don't really feel the normal human, air quote, normal range of positive emotions that you and I do. So yeah, all that to say, listening to people who are caught or descripted content, not definitely there's no correlation between increase of safety versus otherwise. With that, I do want to take a soft pivot into more of your podcasting journey and some of the TBI or the life-altering coma seizure that you endured because that's quite a process. So let's start here on a more macro overarching level. Given everything you talked about just now that you talk about true crime, even though I think yours is truer crime since it's from a lived experiences, as you talked about last time you were on the show or on your show. So from true crime to history, to authors, to Lutheran pastors battling with mental illnesses is quite a wide range. 
So like, what is the central message behind your podcast name? Ignorance was bliss. I used to have a sign-off line, which I kind of let go only because it started to feel false or it, it didn't fit as well. So my intros and outros for every episode. So I, I speak to my guests for between half an hour and an hour about, and then I let it simmer for a little while. And then I go back later and I record an intro and an outro. And the intros and outros, are, you know, I come from the old school of public speaking where you tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them, then you tell them what you just told them. And I let it, I let it simmer a little bit. And then I come back and my intros and outros are not scripted at all. I just, I start everyone with, hey, this is Kate, because it is. And I talk until I reach a point where I can ask the question, are you sure you really want to know? Mm. This is Ignorance Was Bliss. And then it goes into the music and it goes into the conversation. And I used to end the outro with, didn't you feel better before you knew that? <laughs> And I stopped that only because I realized sometimes, no, sometimes you feel better knowing that. Sometimes it does feel better to hear someone else's story and realize you're not alone. You're not crazy. You're not weird. Other people feel this way. Whatever the case is, I, I didn't want to couch it that way. And then I include the suicide prevention lifeline mm -hmm. number. Um, I lost my father to suicide and it's one of those schisms in the world. And if you can just keep breathing. That's even not for your own sake. If you can keep breathing, it, it makes a huge difference for your friends, family, houseplants, small children, and the like. And it ends with the phrase, you matter. I had people tell me that there were times where the only time all week long that anybody would tell them that they were important, that they mattered, was in my disclaimer. And I thought, oh, that my heart. Like, because, like, look, you do. And if you don't feel like you do, give me the chance. Like, the only reason you don't matter to me is because I don't know you. But y y y humans are inherently important in some way. And I think if more people felt that way, the crime rate and the mental illness rate and the violence rate in our society would, would plummet. Also, maybe politics would be less, you know. Right. So I had people tell me there are times where I put on your show just to hear the disclaimer, just to hear someone tell me today that I mattered because I didn't feel like I did. But the title came from the idea that if I can get you to understand what ADHD is, what parenting is, what podcasting is, what acting is it's not that big a leap to understand then what psychopathy and sociopathy are, what serial murder is. Yeah. Cause like I said, I think this ties into what we talked about truth and comfort very briefly earlier. And of course, ignorance is bliss is a trope. And of course there's a lot of that where there is a fundamental difference between willful ignorance and ignorance caused by lack of exposure. And I think that's a very, very big difference to make. And like I said, I was going to take a soft pivot, but you brought up a good point. I just want to provide some more context where can you quickly distinguish the difference between psychopathy and sociopath? Because I have to pick up. That was too obvious. Yeah. I'm a terrible mother. Okay. Let's, let's be clear on this. I own this. 
because by the time my children are in their early teens, they've heard things they probably shouldn't have. But I'm of the opinion that knowledge is power and knowledge is important. And so I have a very clear memory of speaking to my older two who would have been about 10 and 14 at the time, 9 and 13, you know, young, like probably too young to really know that this was a thing. They're doing fine now, so we're good. Um, but, but one of them asked me, what's a sociopath? What's a psychopath? And I said, the, neither of them understands feelings and emotions. Neither of them cares about other humans or dogs or kittens the way normal. And normal is, is not a bad word. Normal is a thing. It's just a, it's a statistical term. The majority of the population feels. The difference between psychopathy and sociopathy is that both of them want to wear your head as a hat, but a sociopath will do it in the privacy of their own home, and a psychopath will do it walking down the street. Yeah, wow, that's that's a really succinct. <laughs> that's a really succinct. So just to go a little bit deeper, because there's a common saying, maybe not now, but I remember a few years ago, where a lot of them said that. A lot of prominent and successful CEOs have sociopathic tendencies, but most of them are not psychopathic. Would that be accurate overall, generally speaking? They could be both. Like, I don't limit them. They could, they could be both. But uh, surgeons often have, and now also, by the way, sociopathy and psychopathy are kind of blended together and used interchangeably, which is fine because the the difference clinically and the difference behaviorally is not really that big. Like either way, they just, it's not that they don't care about other humans, it's that they can't, they don't understand it. They, it's just that sociopaths are kind of better at faking it. Uh, one of my children is a sociopath, arguably also, or autistic, both. She's been diagnosed with autism, but she doesn't understand how other people feel. And so if something surprises her, she laughs. Even if the surprise is like one of my other kids, I have four kids, it's too many, but one of my other kids had a pet rodent. I don't remember whether it was a gerbil or a hamster or a little guy, but it died. And it kind of came as a surprise for all of us. Like it seemed fine one night and the next morning it was not. And my youngest, who is adopted from a trauma background, and so there is a PTSD element there as well, which so that sense of sociopathy is self-protective and i get that but she laughed and she wasn't laughing at my son's pain it was a surprise thing it, it, more than anything and the older they get the better they're able to sort of mask and act like other people so in order to be a ceo but more so in order to be a, a surgeon, for instance, um, sometimes in order to be a psychologist, you have to distance yourself from the humanity of these people. You have to, you, to be a judge, to be a corrections officer, all of these sort of positions where you are making literal life and death decisions about somebody else's life and in existence. And you have to divorce yourself from emotions, at least at work, but often it just sort of becomes a way of being in the world. And so which comes first? I don't know. I like nature versus nurture is a is a moot point for me. It's an argument I refuse to get in because it doesn't matter. I, I'm much more focused on, okay, here's where they are now. So I don't know if they start off 
unable to feel emotions and find jobs that work for them or if they find jobs that work for them and learn to remove the emotion from it but either way if you're doing things making decisions you know cutting into someone's brain that kind of thing you have to forget that this is a mother or uh, you know a podcaster or whatever it is that they are because if you get too emotionally invested you'll make yourself I don't want you to be anxious. I, I just had spinal surgery in August of last year, and I don't want my neurosurgeon thinking about my humanity. I don't want him to get anxious, and I don't want him to shake. I want him to just do the thing as though I am a mannequin on a slab. Right. Yeah, my partner, my fiance, she's a physician, and it is. this is a general blanket statement where most 51% of physicians, especially like surgeons type, they have to be desensitized to the patient's pain and that's why whenever i'm i feel some sort of a pain my pain index and of course pain is almost always subjective my fiance doesn't always recognize the amount of pain i'm in because she is used to cutting people open and seeing some really really traumatic injuries i mean trauma is like a physical trauma so yeah, i definitely echo that statement and i do want to go into the nature topic like I said, we're into this deep hole, so might as well go a little bit deeper into it and we can get to the pivot if we do. I've never said this. This may sound less controversial and less crazy given the context we talked about nature and nurture because it's always both. Where I often say that I have tremendous respect for pedophiles who didn't commit because it's a crime when you commit it, especially pedophilia. And if you look at, look at DSM-5 diagnostic manual, pedophilia is a mental disorder. It's a disruption in your way of thinking. And a lot of that's genetic markers and genetic variations, nature and nurture. What I mean by that is imagine you're a, a, a guy, a person, an adult, and ever since you can remember, the only people that you are sexually attracted to are little kids. And the ages are relevant, right? But where do you go for support for that? Of course, if you commit, that's a crime because no matter your mental disorders, your genetic variations, it's all about contractual relationships. By living in this society, unspokenly, you sign a contract saying that I will abide by the contractual constructs and laws in this society, whether I like it or not, whether I feel the human positive emotions or not. By living here, you made that agreement. That's so when you break it, there's consequences. But for those who are resisting their genetic wiring and who are resisting their innate urges to commit this pedophilia act, which is, of course, atrocious and horrible, imagine where do you even go for support? There isn't a support group for pedophiles who haven't committed. You go online, FBI can track you right away, right? You send anything like that remotely, you get tracked down. So they're literally so alienated by the rest of the world where there isn't literature, there isn't program, there isn't support system. It's such a lonely reality that they have to bear this truth about who they are because it is genetic wiring. But I often talk about that a lot where I can't even imagine the hardship and these things because we often only talk about the victims, which is very, very important. At the same time, even with DSM-5, it never talks about the offenders. It never talks about their psychology, why they do what they do, because it always comes down to the why, because behaviors like addictions are almost always the manifestations of something deeper. First of all, there's a big difference between being a pedophile and a pederast. 
So pedophile is you are attracted to those who are or who appear younger. A pederast acts on it. That's an important distinction. And absolutely agreed. It takes tremendous courage to live in a world where that's what you're attracted to, but you don't follow up on it. So one of the lowest recidivism rates, reoffense rates among inmates are sex offenses. Everybody's like, oh, I'm going to check the sex offender registry. Don't bother. Literally, don't bother. It's a waste of your time. You're going to make yourself nervous. The vast majority of sex offenders act against their families, act against someone where they literally didn't know it was a crime, and they never do it again. For instance, in our society, in the U.S., it's common and, in fact, popular to think about a bar hookup, going to the bar, getting drunk, hooking up with somebody. That's illegal. It's illegal. If someone is fully adult, well over the age of consent in your state, but they are even questionably intoxicated, they cannot consent. Any sex partner who cannot consent or does not consent, that's illegal. You're committing a crime. If your partner of 25 years is asleep, and you touch them in their sleep, you are committing a sex offense. It's illegal. And so children, because we've said so, because of laws, because it's it, like, and, and I agree with these, they cannot consent. So there's a whole kink community around age play. Mm. There are ways around it. There are ways to find legal consent within your sex life that doesn't end up with you being a pederast. There are ways to have prior agreements with your partner where your partner pretends to be asleep. There are ways for you both to consume some degree of alcohol or other drugs and to say, here's what we are or are not going to do tonight, but here's the word, here's the action, here's the way out if it becomes uncomfortable in any way. The bottom line is anything other than an adult who is sober and alert who says yes is a no. Silence is a no. No is a no. Drunk is a no. Children are a no. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I echo that because uh, I reveal, I talked about this uh, recently actually, but I was able to move through my sexual trauma from 2017. And of course, the latest statistics is about one in seven men experience sexual trauma or sexual assault across their lifetime. And of course, woman is the more obvious, blatant side. But yeah, of course, without consent, it's illegal. But yeah, I think it's a fascinating opportunity to talk about some of these individuals who grapple with their nature all the time. And it's literally impossible for us to even peep into their reality just like we will never understand the reality of schizo patients and their hallucinations because what is reality? It's what they experience or what they perceive to be truth. So who are we to deny their reality at the same time we can still? I would argue that only because I've asked. I've sat with schizophrenic patients and the like, and you ask, you start to ask. And it's not that I'm, I, I don't believe that there is such thing as, as universal reality hmm. for people, but I've sat with people who say, yes, I'm hearing voices, and I could just write that down and move on. But instead, I'm like, okay, is it your own voice or somebody else's? 
Is it a male voice or a female? Is it multiple voices? Does it sound like it's coming from outside? Or does it sound like your thoughts speaking to you? And and you get different answers. And sometimes that helps you understand the person better and understand their lived experience better. You know, one of my first, you know, when I was first starting, I was still in my, my master's degree program. So I was 21 at the time. And I worked at a group home for adults with mental illness. And so in the U.S., the first, the biggest provider of mental health is the prison system. There are more people who receive medications and some form of treatment in the prison system than anywhere else, including hospitals in the U.S. But a second, that's because of their, a big role, a uh, big wave of deinstitutionalization, closing hospitals in right. the 1980s. And so sort of a secondary are group homes. And so it's where adults who don't need to be hospitalized, they don't need to be locked up, but they can't reliably care for themselves, manage their medications. And about half of them had some form of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. And they, so I live in Massachusetts and so it's real cold in the winter and it's can get uncomfortably warm for like three and a half days every summer. And they wore heavy winter parkas and jackets every day, all day, all year long, no matter the temperature. And I finally, I asked, and his answer was, well, because with schizophrenia, one of the lesser spoken about symptoms is that they have a hard time with sort of body recognition. They don't really recognize when they're full versus when they're hungry, when they're cold versus hot, that sort of thing. And he's like, I just sometimes don't, I don't feel it. Like, I, I don't really understand when other people are like, oh, it's cold out. And I'm like, I feel fine. And I learned that if it's cold out and I don't wear a coat, I can get frostbite. And that's no fun. That's not great. But if it's hot out and I get too hot, for the most part, I'm okay. As long as I keep drinking water and stuff. You know, or somebody will eventually come along and tell me to take the coat off and then I'll take the coat off or whatever. I'll put it back on as soon as they're not looking at me anymore. But I was like, what an incredibly smart, adaptive thing. And I learned then by watching a lot of people with schizophrenia, with autism, with OCD do exactly that because they're not real confident in their their own ability to recognize their body's cues, but they've learned other ways to care for themselves, to protect themselves because frostbite is miserable and heat stroke is a lot less common out here. So. That's the thing. And so it's just that sort of, there's a shared reality. And then there's also, you, know, you just ask them, just ask people. And if you see somebody standing on the street corner and they're dressed inappropriately for the weather and they're talking to themselves and you cross the street to avoid them, I've just lost respect for you. Hmm. But if you have the courage to just look at them and hey, how's it going? That's enough. Like that's enough because most people look at them like they're invisible. They look right through them. Mm -hmm. And if you stop and ask them, do you need anything? Do you need a snack? Do you need a drink? Are you warm enough? That's extra and you get a prize for the day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes recognizing someone else's humanity requires very little effort on our part. But I do want to highlight, Kate, where I see a through line of humility where just ask. Yes, it sounds simple, but it comes down to do you have the humility to recognize that? Can I learn something from this person I'm about to engage in a conversation with? 
for me to have you on the show. It means I have the humility to recognize I have something to learn from you. And that's why I ask you a question. And a lot of people who either don't want to ask questions or who are unable to ask questions, not always, but there is this sometimes lack of humility because I do feel like the prerequisite for curiosity is humility. And I see that across what you said. And of course, this, this guy you interacted with where a lot of these schizo patients, they do have the humility to recognize their own inability to do body regulations or emotional regulations or what may. So they adapt externally, which I think still comes down to humility aspect and just adopting to survive. So could you share anything practical by maybe walking through some of the highlights of your journey uh, for those who want to reinvent themselves? Because you had the unique opportunity to reinvent yourself interpersonally and professionally many folds with your life altering seizure and the TBI we just talked about. Being forgiving of myself as a human being, forget the diagnoses. Anybody, we are all struggling with our stuff. And so it's all about sort of breaking things into smaller chunks and giving myself permission to feel and be who I am. I am never going to be the engineering student again. And I'm never going to physically, like I had the brain that I probably could do. Certainly the, the crisis assessment, I could probably do the forensic assessment again, but my body wouldn't allow me to now. Like I can walk, but I couldn't. There's a lot of walking in motion involved in doing assessment work. And mourning that, giving myself permission to mourn that. And grief is a... It's a terrible thing. And I think people don't give themselves enough space and grace to grieve what they wanted to do. But I think if you do, if you give yourself permission to have small wins and permission to grieve that which you thought you would be able to do, but maybe can't or can't right now, I think that's a huge step to being able to achieve whatever it is that you really want to do. Yeah, giving us the grace for doing what we could do within our best of our capacity. A famous army adage is embrace the suck. I like to add on where embrace the suck to the best of your ability because discomfort does lead to resilience and resilience do lead to anti-fragility, which is increasing the baseline of strength based on what you went through. At the same time, grace has to be part of the equation. And of course, America is great at leaving out the grace and just say, go, go, go all the time. I think that's a beautiful way for us to conclude today's episode because I do want to end the episode with that hopeful, gracious message. Because as I said earlier, reinventing yourself doesn't matter who you are, how much experiences you've gone under and what sort of life stage you're in. Change is almost always hard. And I hope that we can leave today's conversation at that where please show us your grace as you talked about that you matter we all do because it's not us who determine or who predetermine other people's worth which is what the social media has given us this delusion that we can prejudge everything but kate i appreciate your time today and your thorough responses uh, this is where i roll out the red carpet for you where can people check you out for some of the other wider ranging conversations you have on your show ignorance was bliss you sure you want to know or anything in between my website is iwbpodcast.com 
and I'm at IWB Podcast on all of the social medias. And I'm online probably too much, but I'm home all the time. So, you know, please reach out. I've had people reach out and connect in real and true ways. I don't believe that there's a a, a true difference between the importance of an online friendship versus the importance of a face-to-face friendship. Because if I did, I'd be really miserable and lonely. And <laughs> instead, some of my closest friends are online. And so reach out. And, and if you feel like you don't matter, I'm telling you, you do. And if you don't matter to me right now, this second, that's because I don't know who you are. But I feel like it doesn't take, it doesn't hurt me. I, I'm not promising you, you know, eternal fidelity or anything like that, or, you know, but it doesn't hurt me to pay attention to other human beings because I know what it's looked like to be judged and overlooked. So if, if you, if you find me on any of the social medias, even if you tell me you don't like how I talk, I value the input. Yeah. Next time when someone flip you out on the road for the road rage, just give them a thumbs up and smile. Of course, that's something I like to practice because it's not easy. But when you do make that happen, just look at what the other person's facial expression is. They're always shocked and disbelief and you just drive it away graciously. And I say that in part for myself because I live in Los Angeles, the mecca of traffic and palm trees. Well, I mean, I live, in, I live outside of Boston. I blow kisses instead, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think that's how I want to just end today's conversation where Please remember that we're all worthy. We are all here with a unique calling, whether that calling is a forensic psychology, correction officer, podcasting, or whatever. And please, before you judge someone else based on the cover or based on lack of context, because if you do have context, you probably won't be judging. Please remind yourself that we all born the same way and we all will literally die the same way. And we're all part of the same species. Because I do pray that one day we can, as a society, bypass and move through this point of contention that we are within socioeconomically, politically, whatever language you want to slap on. But um, that is it for today's conversation. Kate, like I said, I appreciate for your time. Um, For all the listeners, as always, I appreciate for tuning in week after week, listening to a 30-year-old myself talking with some fascinating folks I discover online and in person. And hopefully I get to see you again in the next week's train of Discover More. Until then, thank you for tuning in.